chapter 3 as we look at the Spirit bringing life. Paul is teaching that he indeed, along with the others that are laboring with him, have been made ministers of the new covenant. And really, uh, throughout the Bible, the overarching theme is covenant, uh, from the old covenant to the new covenant. Now, you could say uh, old covenant, new covenant. You could say covenant of works, covenant of grace. You could say you're either under Adam or you're under Christ. Um, that's kind of how you really divide the Bible up. Uh, so you have an old and you have a new. Uh, kind of therefore, you've got an Old Testament and you've got a, a New Testament. So that's really uh, what we see throughout the Scripture. Now, just to serve as a reminder, the outline we've been following through 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's go back to verse number 1. So the first heading we looked at was that Paul's ministry was confirmed by the Corinthians. Uh, verse 1, the question was asked. Verse 2, the answer was given. And verse 3, the proof of the answer was provided. The second thing we noticed was that Paul's ministry was confirmed by the work of the Spirit. He said his confidence was in verse 4. He said, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. And then verse 5, the general reason for Paul's confidence he said, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And then his specific reason is verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul's, the ministry was confirmed by the Corinthians and what the Spirit had done among them. The ministry was also confirmed by the fact that the Spirit had made this obvious and gave Paul confidence in it. And then thirdly, we looked at they were made ministers of a new covenant. Fourth, that the Spirit gives life, not the letter. The letter gives, brings death. And they were ministers now of life and not death. And then we get to verse 7 through 11. And Paul now uses, um, speaking of greater glory and lesser glory. Uh, he's really what he's doing is giving us an exposition of the book of Exodus in, in a real short, simple way. I say simple and here I am taking 15 sermons to get through it. But um, so anyway, I'll leave that alone. But, uh, you know, you can what we're doing is comparing two different eras of time. And uh, there's an old covenant age and there's a new covenant age. There's two covenants, the old covenant, the new covenant. Uh, you could say the covenant of works, covenant of grace. Uh, you could say those that are in Adam are in Christ. There's an old age. There's a new age. Um, Paul, th throughout 2 Corinthians, speaks of Jesus coming and making all things new. Uh, if you have been born again, you're no the old man has died. Behold, all things become new. So you get that entire concept of what Paul is trying to put forth here. So look at verse 7. The Bible says the ministry of death. Jump down to verse 9. It says the ministry of condemnation. Jump down to verse 14. It says their minds were hardened for to this day when they read, Paul says, the old covenant. So the ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, is summed up for the Old Covenant. So I ask you the question this evening, what is the Old Covenant? Uh, 
If I don't know what the old covenant is, I cannot appreciate what Paul is saying here about the new. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Jeremiah 31 just real quickly before we go to Exodus. But Jeremiah 31, and I want to read this with you uh, beginning in verse 31. Jeremiah 31 beginning in verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31. Uh, Jeremiah's writing and preaching. Well, maybe I shouldn't say writing. He's preaching um, here to the people of Israel. And he says in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming. Anytime you see that, the days are coming. That's eschatological. Meaning, last days. There's their hope of the last days. the, The end times. That was something they were looking forward to because... In that day, whenever that day was going to come, was a day that God was going to bring salvation. So Paul, Paul, I'm sorry, Jeremiah says here, "The, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? New covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now what is going to be different? Notice verse 32. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now watch the emphasis here. My covenant that they, what? Broke. That's the old covenant. The covenant they broke. The covenant God made with their fathers. He said, even though he was their husband, declares the Lord. The distinguishing elements about the new covenant are found in verse 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So, let's go look at where this covenant was made. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter number 19. Now, let me also remind you that when you do read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you know, when when you're reading these guys preaching, don't think in your mind that these preachers or these prophets are at the end of the Bible. These guys were preaching during the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So if you want to know, you know, chronologically where all this is fitting, then you need to understand that. Because sometimes I think the way the Bible's laid out, we get our mind thinking that Jeremiah and Ezekiel came along way after Kings came along. But the truth of the matter, they was in the midst of the people preaching during that day. So going back to the book of Exodus, Exodus 19, beginning in verse number 3. What is this covenant that was made, this old covenant? Exodus chapter 19, verse number 3. He said, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
Now, if you ever want to circle a verse in your Bible, that's going to be one of them. Notice what God said here. You, you yourselves have seen what I did. So you saw what I did. Now look at verse 5. If you will obey my voice. You ever heard of them if-then statements? This is one of them. If Israel obeys, then they will be his treasured possession. Straight from the text. If they obey, they will be his treasured possession. Among all the people, for all the earth's his. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you... And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, what? We will do. They confirmed it. We're going to do it, Lord. Every bit of it. We're going to keep covenant. Verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it on the basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be what? Obedient. Obedient. Now, this covenant just got cut. Some translation will even say God cut covenant with Israel. God cut covenant with Abraham. If you remember, Abraham, a sleep fell on him. And he, you know, he cut the animal in pieces, laid them on opposite sides of each other. Blood was present. God came down and walked through the middle. That's symbolizing that if God did not hold his end of the bargain, may what happened to the animal carcass times 10 happen to God. Same thing implied here for the people of Israel. They took this covenant based on blood. So if we don't obey, may what happened to this animal in our stead also come upon us 10 times. Don't forget that. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Now, I'm I'm going to save you uh, from having to read verses 15 down. But you can see what every verse begins with, 15 down. Uh, Curse, 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 curse. Well, verse 26, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by how? Carrying them out, by doing them. And all the people shall say what? Amen. What does amen mean? We agree. Yes. Let it be known. So this is the old covenant. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 verse 22. Deuteronomy 29 verse 22. This is kind of unique to me. 
Deuteronomy 29, verse 22, it says, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout and overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zobalim, or Zobium, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? And then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other Elohims or gods and worshiped them. Gods who they had not known, whom he had not allotted to them. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in the book. You say, why do you find that unique? God told them they were not going to keep the covenant. Isn't, it, isn't that just unique? You know, I don't, I'm willing, and I don't know this. This is wrong. This is why you don't need the eisegete, so don't follow my example here. But just based on speculation. Let me call it speculation instead of eisegete. Speculation. I speculate that there was probably some faithful, elderly family in Israel who thought to themselves when they heard this, that's scary. Because how else did anybody get saved in that day? The only way you get saved, by faith. There were genuine believers among the people of Israel. But this covenant they made had a stipulation. They must obey. If they did not obey, they were cut off. They were cut off. So let's summarize the covenant in Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Here's your summary. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. Do you see the condition? If you do this, then this will happen. Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other Elohim or Elo other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely what? Perish. And you shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. And so he calls upon heaven to be his witnesses. This is the old covenant. If Israel keeps covenant, they remain the people of God. If Israel keeps covenant, they can be the blessed of God. If they maintain the covenant. And they maintain the covenant by acting in obedience to the commands of God. If they don't, they're cut off. Now, sometimes we can read all these issues or explanations about the covenant and we kind of think, well, the law is just bad. 
You know, you got a ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, ministry of, you know, these types of things. The letter kills, it brings death, it only condemns. But let me also just come in and say this, that the law of God is good. The law of God is not bad. Paul said it like this in Romans 7. He said, he said, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would have not known what sin was. The point is, is that the law brings about the knowledge of what? Sin, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But did you catch verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30? Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. I have set before you today, what? Two distinctions. Life and goodness, or death and evil. You got an option. You got a choice here. Life and goodness, death and evil. Go back to Leviticus 18 verse, uh, verse 5 real quick. And you'll see it again. Leviticus 18 verse number 5. And then maybe we'll get back to 2 Corinthians. Leviticus 18 verse number 5. Leviticus 18 verse number 5. <clears throat> Leviticus 18 verse number 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them he shall what live by them i am yahweh or i am the lord so if you do them you will what live if you don't you won't that's the stipulation if they live by them they have life boy that sounds often often uh Familiar, if I go back in my mind to Genesis 3, to a garden of Eden, where you have Adam and you have Eve. Adam was created and he was taken and placed in this garden sanctuary that is called Eden. And he was commanded by God to keep it and cultivate it and, and make good of it. And when he was placed in this garden, he was told, don't eat of this one particular tree. If you eat it, you will surely what? Die. So there's a stipulation for Adam. There's even one for Abraham. Abraham was told that unless they circumcised their male children at eight days old, they would be what? Cut off from the covenant. Then Moses... We just read that. If they obey, if they, they live, if they don't, they're cut off. Well, then we don't have time for the Davidic. But if you get to David, David now as king stands as a representative for the people. And if the king keeps the covenant, then the people live and enjoy the blessings. But what do we know of the reputation of the book of First and Second Kings? It wasn't good. So Israel, throughout the book of Psalms, begins to cry out, How long, O Lord? We're waiting for this last day in which you are sending prophets to preach. When will the Messiah come? When will this one from Abraham come that's going to bring about such blessing? Well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. 
And here we begin to kind of solidify in our mind the Old and New Covenant. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, again, just a reminder, the, the Bible tells us that this Old Covenant has come to an end. Matthew chapter 11 verse 13 says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until who? John, right? So until John, you got this old system. It also tells us that Jesus came and put an end to this old system or a ministry to put an end to the ministry of Moses, you could say. John 1 verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And what Paul is telling these ministers here is that we are no longer ministers of death, but rather ministers of life. We are preaching the life giving gospel church. That's what we've all been made a minister of. We've all received, if you are a Christian, this new covenant promise in Jesus Christ. And we don't tell people that. You know, there is no hope. We tell people the hope has come. This this time that was foretold by the prophets of old. Listen at this from Isaiah. Isaiah 46 verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. And my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. When is that going to come? How long, O Lord? Jeremiah 23, verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is, uh, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Well, that sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, don't it? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what do we tell people? We tell people that the end of which Israel longed for, this new age, it was dawning at the birth of Jesus Christ from a virgin in Bethlehem. And as he lived and grew up, he sat around a table one night, around in his 30s, early 30s, and this is what he said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is it. My blood is inaugurating or bringing in or ushering in this new covenant. You're in chapter 3. Go back to chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I can't offer somebody a guarantee if it's fading away. In other words, the old covenant couldn't offer you a guarantee because it has now been brought to an end. The new covenant will never be brought to an end. Therefore, I can offer you hope forevermore. 
Jesus says that I will remember their sin no more. Permanent acquittal. Permanent vindication. Permanent forgiveness. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Flip over to chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Picking up in verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, I said verse 18. Let's go back to verse 16. From now on. So there's a transition happening. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, new creature. The old has passed away. Now, now, now just stay with me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature, new creation. The old creation has what? Passed away. And now the new creation has come. You know, we hear that language, don't we, all throughout the Bible? There's old heaven, old earth, new heaven, new earth. Reckon Paul's making any connection with that? Saying that now that Christ has come and ushered in the salvation of the new covenant promise, that there's a new, you are living in a new era. You are living in a new time under a new covenant, under a new administration that the glory of surpasses far greater than the old ever did. Moses' face would only stay glowing for so long as he covered his face with the veil. We'll eventually get there. And then eventually that glory would fade away. But the glory that you and I have received, which is found in the face of Jesus Christ, stays with Christians forever. Forever. Never fading away. Never. What does Peter say? And I know we talk about the eschatological things, about the earth melting away and all the brimstone, all this kind of stuff. But what if Peter was referring to this old creation of the old covenant that is melting away in fervent heat? All of that is gone. It is done. And Jesus has brought to be a new creation. You are no longer the old person you once were. You are new. No sin. No trace of it. The blood has washed it away. God's wrath has been satisfied. Jesus was condemned that you may be liberated. Jesus was nailed to a cross that you may go free. Jesus was cursed in order that you and I might be adopted. Go over to chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 2. Chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. So what do we tell people? He says, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Well, he's quoting that from somewhere, ain't he? Well, what does he say? How is Paul interpreting that passage? He says, behold, what? Well, we're going to sit here and wait for that day. Is that what he said? <laughs> no. Don't you love that little word now? We could do a Greek word study on it, but you know what you're going to figure out? It's now. 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 
is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of what? Salvation. So the end time that Israel was longing for has now come and been revealed totally, completely in who? Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Why is that significant? You remember anything about the old covenant? Just read it. If you did not obey, you experienced what? Curses. And so if the old is now passed away, and I'm only a recipient of the new, then that means the condemnation that hung over my head under the law has been forever removed. The law that stood as a debt that I owed for the lack of my obedience has been removed from me, cleared from me, forever eliminated. Malachi says, cast into, God throws it behind his back, basically to remember it no more, because Jesus was condemned in my place. There's two things about Christ. You need to remember these two things. The active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus. You need to know those two theological concepts. The active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Now, what does those two things mean? Active obedience of Christ means that Jesus actively lived in obedience to everything the law said you must do and never, ever, ever sinned. His passive obedience means that he was hanging on a cross voluntarily and passively. In other words, the reception of God's wrath upon him did not come as what he deserved, but rather he received it as a substitute in our place, passively dying a death that he did not deserve to die. So he obeyed actively by living a perfect life, but also passively by receiving my condemnation and yours on a cross. And therefore, in every way, fulfilling the law of God. So Paul says, I got all the confidence in the world. I don't have to worry about making myself sufficient. You know, the Bible is very clear in, in what it says that now is the day, today is the day. The law says do, the gospel says done. This is the hope that you and I proclaim. We are indeed condemned under the law. But Christ in his grace has come and brought forgiveness Israel broke covenant. Now let me ask you a question. Did God's wrath ever come on Israel for breaking covenant? That's the question. And this sort of distinguishes 
your eschatological beliefs. Whether you believe about Israel determines a lot of your theology in the Bible. The scripture is clear that if they obeyed, they would stay God's favored people. But if they broke covenant, what would happen? They wouldn't retain that position. So the question is, did God just sit back and, and allow all of that all of that disobedience and covenant breaking to go on and just sit there with folded arms? No, he didn't. He did not. So what happened? Well, first Kings, I'm sorry, second Kings 23, the Bible says that the sin of Manasseh was really the straw that broke the camel's back. It was kind of the crushing time to where God allowed Babylon to come in. Anybody remember what year that was for about 2000 Bible bonus points? 586, 587 BC. So Babylon came in, destroyed Jerusalem and exported them all to Babylon. Well, we know that they were in captivity how long? 70 years. 70 years, and then God sovereignly works in the king of Cyrus's heart. <laughs> Proverbs 16 says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever so is or he wishes. But anyway, he turned the heart of Cyrus the king's heart. Cyrus the king wrote a decree, and what happened? Israel got to come back to the land that they, was theirs. And when they came back, we know that Nehemiah and Ezra struggled to get them to have any motivation to rebuild the temple. <clears throat> you, you know, and you say, why? Well, folks, they lived 70 years in a pagan land. Their, their teachings and things that they held near and dear in their generation, last generation's time, was well gone. So when they came back, they rebuilt the temple, but that temple was never up to steam. And, and unfortunately, their, their waywardness continued. Well, then we get to Matthew chapter 23. And Jesus said this to them, that generation. He said, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes in Matthew 23, 34, some of whom you will kill and crucify and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the first murder of Abel all the way to the righteous blood of, of Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, that was preached by Jesus probably late 30 AD. What do we know happened about 40 years later? 70 AD. That's the last time there was ever a temple standing in Jerusalem. God decimated that entire system. That you and I who read of Israel in the old covenant, we should never become prideful of our adoption into the family of God in the new covenant. We should look back and read of all that they went through as in regards to just their life and their waywardness and think, it should cause us to fall on our knees in humility before God that he would bring any sinner into a covenant and not just bring us into the new covenant, but keep us there. We don't deserve that. But we maintain our covenant status because the blood of Jesus was sufficient to wash away all our waywardness. So you... You're saved. 
remain an adopted child of God, never threaten to be cut off because Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the old covenant and kept it for you and me. Let's, t- well, so many places. Uh, uh, let's go to two. We'll go to two. It's hard to bring them down. Uh, let's go to Romans two twenty eight, and then we'll close with Galatians. Romans two uh, twenty eight. Romans chapter two verse twenty eight. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one where? What makes you a Jew? It's on the inside, right? Just making sure I'm reading that right. Inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the what? Heart. How is it done? By the Spirit. You think Paul maybe wrote, preached Romans and wrote... No. <laughs> But in 2 Corinthians 3, what does he say brings life? Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit brings life. He says here in verse 29, A Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, done by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from who? Man, but from God. All right, let's turn and we'll close. I'll let Paul have the last word in Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, and I'll pick up reading in verse 5. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of who? Well, what are the others? If you're not a son of Abraham, then who are you a son of? You remember in the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus... He told them, he said, you're liars and murderers, just like your father, the who? The devil. So you are either of the seed of the woman or seed of the serpent. And so Paul says here that those who are believed, those who exercise faith are children of Abraham. Verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, 
The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You can jump all the way down to verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what's the critical element? Faith. Faith. If you have exemplified faith, you're of Christ. You're of Abraham. I thought this was interesting. It's just an illustration I've come across, and I'll close with this. When Moses revealed the law, or God revealed the law to him on top of Mount Sinai, you remember the picture that was painted? It was thundering, it was lightning. The people were down below. They were even told, don't let the animals come near. If they touch a mountain, they're going to fall dead. I mean, it was a big deal. God was way up there, the law was coming. I mean, I can only imagine the scene. We get a little taste of it in Exodus and then some in Hebrews. But you have God way up above the people on Mount Sinai, delivering the law, giving the law to Moses. There's thundering, there's lightning. And then the gospel is Emmanuel. God with us. Trust Him. Trust His promises. They are all found in Jesus, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You.